Many of you probably know this. Um, my son, Zachary, loves sea creatures. He also enjoys rides. And if you put those two things together, his interest in sea creatures and his interest in roller coasters and rides, if you put them together, the former plus the latter equals a great desire to go to SeaWorld. <laughs> Not too long ago, um, he had a trifold brochure of SeaWorld. And he would be looking at it and pointing to the different things that are there. Oh, look at the orca, or look at this roller coaster, and things like that. And as he would look at it, the excitement would grow concerning the prospect of going there. And there's a sense in which tonight what I want to do is I want to fill out, using the text of Scripture, not the fallen imaginations and imaginings of men, I want to look at the Scriptures and I want us to very carefully with careful strokes of the paintbrush and paint of Scripture, fill in the brochure, as it were, of heaven and what awaits. Now, I don't suppose that tonight's lesson and the last lesson that we had done on heaven will cover all that could be said about the heaven that is, yet alone what's coming, yet alone the eternal state, yet alone the new heaven and new earth, when the new Jerusalem descends from above and is joined to earth, Lord willing, at the end of our eschatological study, we will have more time to consider that. What is it going to be like to be on a new earth? What is it going to be like to have glorified bodies? These type of questions are still ahead of us, and Lord willing, in the days ahead, there will be answers. But for right now, we're considering the heaven that is, and I don't even think in the last, in the last message and this message, we will cover all that could be covered. But I do think... And I'm confident that as your eyes are set upon the images that are painted or the truths that are declared or even the likelihoods that are implied, by God's grace, I hope your interest will be caught. I hope your excitement over the prospect of going there will increase. And I hope you marvel, even as you are sitting in your seats right now, I hope you marvel at the God who has so graciously prepared such realities for his people. And that's where I want to begin tonight, just by emphasizing the point that heaven is real, because the Bible clearly says that it is. So that's where I want us to start. It is a reality, and these are realities that are set before us in Scripture concerning what heaven is. Now, many people throughout history have been sent on wild goose chases to find lost cities that were either the creation of fallen men's imaginations... In some cases, it was the result of men finding some gold in certain places and then having their hopes inflated that they would find more gold in these proverbial lost cities. In some cases, perhaps it was the natives of these different places that didn't want to be invaded, so they were trying to send those who were coming on wild goose chases so that they would go looking for these lost cities. Coronado, for instance, the Spanish conquistador, conquistador, he was sent on an expedition that would lead to, and some of you might know this, it would just lead to disappointment after disappointment. He set out searching for the seven cities of gold, Cibola. And what did he find? Clay huts and grass huts. Our destination, however, is attested to by many attestations in the Word of God. You just go through the Gospel of Matthew, for instance, and you watch how many times our Lord Jesus refers to our Father as our Father who is in heaven. How many times He refers to our Father as our Heavenly Father. How many times He refers to heaven being the Father's throne. It's amazing just to watch the way those kind of statements roll off the lips of our Savior. You just go into the Gospel of Matthew and you see that over and over again. Our Savior Himself 
said that he came down from heaven. John chapter 6, verse 38. The apostles were there on the day of the ascension, and they saw him ascend into heaven. And the angels made that very clear. They said that Jesus was taken up from them into heaven. And then we know that he would one day come back. He will one day come back from heaven. That is all over the New Testament as well. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, 2 Thessalonians 1.7. Furthermore, think of Stephen. As Stephen was about to be martyred, he, Acts 7, verse 55, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Paul, apparently referring to himself, I think likely referring to himself in 2 Corinthians 12, he spoke of being caught up to the third heaven. Not just the, the heaven that we could see with our eyes, the near atmospheric heaven, or the space heaven. He thought of being caught up to, he said he was caught up to, the third heaven where God's throne is. He called it paradise. The Apostle John, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, was called up into heaven. He was immediately in the Spirit and he received a glimpse of heaven. And we're going to take a glimpse at the glimpse that he got a little bit later on tonight. And there's so much more that could be said. He saw the heavenly Jerusalem coming down from above and being joined to earth. What about the Old Testament references as well? Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Daniel, Daniel saw the Ancient of Days seated on the throne. He saw his throne, and he saw one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, coming to the Ancient of Days. What about the prophet Micaiah in 2 Chronicles chapter 18, verse 18? He saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all of the heavenly assembly on his right hand and left hand. I say all that to say the scripture is filled with numerous attestations of the reality of heaven. You are not on a journey based on the hearsay of fallen men looking for a city that you will never find, looking for the seven cities of gold or so on, El Dorado. You are looking towards a city. You are journeying towards a city that indeed exists. It's currently populated. And the population continues to increase. I don't imagine that there's like a sign when you get to heaven that says population and the number. But if there were such a sign, how neat is it to think heaven is rejoicing over one sinner that repents and that population continues to increase. How amazing that is. So you're journeying to a city that's real. You're journeying to a city that's populated. You're journeying towards a city where God and Christ are gloriously celebrated. And being there will be amazing. So what I want to do tonight, using that illustration that I did on the front end, in the introduction of a brochure, I want to, as it were, fill out the brochure a little bit tonight. Not covering ground that we covered in the first lesson on heaven, but taking some glimpses from either texts or images in the scriptures, I want us to fill out the brochure. Okay, so the first thing that I want to put on this brochure, it's a text inclusion. It reads like this. So if I was making a brochure as to what heaven is like, I would include these words. Very much more better. And you might say, why in the world would you want to put such bad English on your brochure? Don't lead with bad English and bad grammar. Ah, yes, it is bad English. 
but it does connote literal New Testament Greek that we would all do well to know. In fact, I think that this may very well be the most, if not the most, one of the most important protective truths about heaven that you can know. Namely, that whatever the dynamics are of the heaven that is right now, that heavenly city, that glorious place, whatever the dynamics of it are, it is far better than even the best that you can experience on this earth. Now this truth comes from Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. There the Apostle Paul wrote, after having said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, after having said that, he comes to verse 23 a little bit after, and he says, for I am hard pressed between the two, uh, living on in the flesh or dying and being with Christ. So he said, for I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. And you may notice in the text that is provided in your notes, the words which and the word is, both of those words, are italicized, showing that they are insertions in the English text to help it better flow in English. Now, if you remove those two words, which is, you have four words at the end of Philippians 1.23. And I love what Ray Stedman said about those four words. He said that the Christian view of death could be summed up in four words. It's the four words found at the end of Philippians 1.23 after you remove which is. With Christ, far better. Now that could be expanded upon though. It's beautiful to say in English. But now we could expand upon that when we see how much more descriptive it actually is in New Testament Greek. This is one of those times where looking at the New Testament Greek actually, I think, expands our understanding of a statement that's already clear and beautiful in the English. When you read this in New Testament Greek, you have to love the way in which Paul describes how much better it is to be with Christ. He said that to be with Christ, follow me, don't worry, I'll explain. He said to be with Christ was palo, gar, malon, kreson. If you remove the word gar, which is simply a conjunction that means for, he is basically saying this, to be with Christ is palo, very much, malon, more, kreson, better. He is, as Marvin Vincent noted, he is essentially heaping up comparatives to show how great it is and how much greater it is to be with Christ than even the best that this world has to offer. It is very much more better. If there is a bad grammatical English statement that you want to memorize, it's that one. Very much more better. I'll tell you why I think that's so important for us to know. Because I think it is maybe perhaps the most important verse for Christians to know concerning heaven so that they are protected against the thoughts of heaven that could lead them to being despondent. So it's a sad irony that happens. God has prepared this glorious place for us. In Jesus' Father's house, there are many dwelling places. And sometimes for believers who wouldn't want to admit this, but sometimes it happens, you could think about heaven and then all of a sudden you have fires of enthusiasm that are burning, and all of a sudden this wondering comes to your mind. This question comes to your mind, and it functions as a kind of proverbial wet blanket. And all of a sudden you're thinking about heaven, and you're not as excited about it as you were previously. Let me briefly take target at what I think some of the most formidable questions are. 
So I think somebody could be very excited about heaven, a Christian who knows they're justified by the blood of Christ, but then all of a sudden they ask the question, what about marriage? See, there are people who are happily married and they can't imagine heaven without marriage. And then there are those who haven't been married and they think to themselves that if they are not married here, they miss out and then heaven feels more like an approaching deadline than they'd want to admit. But besides the fact that the scripture clearly teaches us that marriage exists not only for procreation and companionship, but marriage exists, according to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, to point to something infinitely better than itself, the relationship between Jesus and his church. Besides that, even if you didn't have Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, even if you didn't have that, you have Philippians 1.23 which says to depart and be with Christ, is very much more better. Now, some people would say, well, what about physical intimacy? I mean, I know in the age to come, there's no marriage or giving in marriage. And then you start saying, well, am I going to miss out on that? And then what happens if I don't get to enjoy that here? And then what happens there? And I won't get to enjoy that there. How could heaven be heaven? And so on. Maybe some people have thoughts like that. And you want to say Philippians 1.23 to your mind. To be with Christ is very much more better. And likely the sensations of joy and ecstasy that can be felt through physical intimacy are Fallen tokens of an infinitely better joy and untainted ecstasy to be enjoyed in the age to come. A creaturely token of something infinitely better that awaits the people of God. What about having children? And some people might say, I, I can't imagine heaven or the eternal state, right? People could just start imagining and say, I just can't even imagine what it would be like not to see at some point little children running around, whether it never happens at all or whether it stops happening at some point, millennial earth dynamics, new, new age to come, the, the age to come and so on, all of those things. And I want to say, you want to say Philippians 1.23 to yourself. To be with Christ is very much more better. I think... This is my opinion. I think that the blessed creaturely experience of having children gives us a little hint of what it will be like when we all, as God's blood-bought children, are forever dwelling in our Father's house. I further suspect that the qualities that we so adore in children will be found in some way in heaven, mingled, of course, with spiritual maturity. Regardless, you know that being with Christ will be far better, much more very much better. Now, it could go on. We could like, continue listing examples. Some people might love what they do. They might love their job. And they might say, what is it going to be like in the age to come? Am I not going to get to do what I love? Well, if you enjoy working in a funeral home, no. <laughs> you, are, you are done. I talked with Gary after our last, uh, our last time in our study of heaven, and Gary, as you know, uh, excellent in carpentry, and I could so imagine in the new earth with a glorified body and access to resources and so on, Gary doing amazing work in the age to come. I could imagine that, but for some, uh, it won't carry over, right? We're not going to need doctors in heaven. But you know that to be with Christ, beyond a shadow of a doubt, you know that it is very much more better. So that's why I think Philippians 1.23 is so important. Just like knowing the attributes of God, and if you know that God is indefinitely 
perfectly, intrinsically good when you consider that God is sovereign and you consider the existence of sin, you have guardrails in your consideration of those theological topics, namely knowing that God is good. That's unshakable. So when you come to the subject of heaven, you have Philippians 1.23, and that truth is unshakable. To be with Christ is far better. So whenever you have a wet blanket about to be thrown on your excitement of heaven, you just want to tell yourself and essentially throw away that wet blanket by saying, no, I know to be with Christ is very much more better. I know that. Now let's get to brochure inclusion number two. There are some images that I would like to put on this brochure. Um, but before we get there, I want to tell you of one other piece of text that I would add to this brochure. I would add some text to the brochure that says, Heaven, a place of full, ongoing, and ever-increasing satisfaction. I would put that on there, because I would want people to know that when you are journeying towards heaven, you are journeying towards a place of full, ongoing, and ever-increasing satisfaction. Now, I do want to nuance that. I'm nuancing that in light of certain realities, namely the following. We know in Psalm 16, verse 11, that to be in God's presence brings with it fullness of joy. And yet at the same time, we know that those who are in heaven right now, spirits of just men and women made perfect, are waiting for the day to come when Christ returns and believers get their glorified bodies. So there's a sense in which believers in heaven are fully satisfied with the presence of God and being in the presence of Christ and yet are awaiting their glorified bodies and are waiting for the consummation of this age. So that's an important nuance to understand when we say that heaven is a place nonetheless of full, ongoing, and ever-increasing satisfaction. You know that feeling when your thirst is quenched? When you maybe have been, you know, running, you've been exercising and you've been sweating, and then all of a sudden you have that nice glass of water and you just feel so refreshed. I think that's a creaturely token of what we will experience forever when we are in the presence of our Lord and Savior. When we're in the presence of our God. Remember God described himself in Jeremiah 2.13 as the one who is the fountain of living water. He, often, he also depicted what we so often do, don't we? Instead of going to the fountain of living water in the here and now, we try to hew out for ourselves cisterns that cannot hold water. Jeremiah 2.13. You know that feeling of fullness that you have? I'm not talking about like the uncomfortable fullness when you ate too much, like at Thanksgiving or something like that. I'm not talking about that one. I'm talking about like a good fullness where you're not in pain and you just had a great meal. I think that's a creaturely glimpse of what we're going to experience forever in heaven. Jesus said in Luke 6.21, Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. You know that feeling of comfort? That feeling when you feel past the crisis? When you feel past the pain? When you feel past the hurt? And all of a sudden you're just experiencing some comfort and relief? That's a little creaturely glimpse of what awaits us in heaven. Think of Lazarus. Right? He received his bad things, to use language from Luke 16, but he was comforted. There is great comfort that awaits the people of God. You know that feeling of rest? Say that feeling of rest after you drive back from Florida 
when you are taking students on a conference and you drive back straight through the night and then you get back home and you have to drop off students in the morning when you come back and then you finally get to sleep. You may not know that experience, but I do. And rest is sweet. Rest is one of the ways in which that, uh, that period of what awaits us is described as. Even Daniel was told that he was going to have to rest for a while. In a state of consciousness, yes. Being present there in heaven and awake, not in a state of soul sleep, but in Daniel 12, 3, he was told that he would rest. We know that those who labored in this life, when they died, to use language from Revelation 14, 13, and to apply it, they enter into their rest, and here's good news, their labors, their works do follow them. It's not like the unbeliever whose works do follow them to the white throne of judgment. For the believer, they enter in a state of rest. And as they rest, they wait for the rewards that will come by the grace of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 in play there. Therefore, be immovable, steadfast, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. But it's a state of rest. And all of these things, I think, are creaturely experiences that provide us tokens of the ultimate satisfaction that awaits us. Jonathan Edwards put it like this. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. See, if you think of everything that you enjoy, every relationship, every friendship, every moment that you enjoy, it's ultimately pointing to what you were created for. All things were created through Christ and for Christ. You were created for your God and to enjoy Him forever. So don't think you're going to miss out on things. You're going to get the thing that all of those things pointed to, namely uninterrupted communion with your God forever. This is amazing. There are more scriptures that speak to the satisfaction that awaits us. I'll just give you some. The psalmist said, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Psalm 17, verse 15. Other verses that imply the satisfaction. The psalmist in Psalm 64 said, blessed is the man that you choose and cause to approach you, that he may dwell in your courts, we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. And doubtless, that is most true of enjoying God's presence in heaven. The picture of satisfaction continues on. God is described as the psalmist's exceeding joy. Psalm 43, verse 4. Psalm 84, verse 10 says that a day in God's courts are better than a thousand elsewhere. I know what I'm about to quote has application for now, but think of the infinite applications to it in the age to come. Jesus spoke of how whoever drinks of the water that he shall give will never be thirsty again. Paul knew how amazing it was going to be to be with Christ. That's why he said to depart and be with Christ is far better. And he also spoke of his life in this way, saying that he suffered the loss of all things and he counted them as rubbish that he might what? Gain Christ. 
you might say that the great point of your salvation is not so much to bring you to heaven as much as it is to bring you to God. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ died for our sins, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. I want to get to brochure inclusion number three. And now these next, uh, these next two will be pretty brief, but if I was creating a brochure, I would have the text that I just provided for you. I would have text that says the bad grammatical English of very much more better, and I would have a statement that says heaven, a place of full, ongoing, and ever-increasing satisfaction, and then I'd also include a picture of people laughing, of people laughing. I say that because oftentimes when people think of heaven, I don't think they imagine people laughing. Yet Jesus said in Luke 6.21, after he said, Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. The second half of the verse reads, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. I don't know if you've ever imagined heaven being a place where not only is there holy joy, but there's hearty and holy joy-filled laughter. But that's the picture that's painted in Luke 6.21. If you were going to say, okay, well, George, how do I better understand this laughter that's described here? I think you just stay within the context. If you looked in Luke 6.21, you'd say that this um, laughing is the opposite of weeping, so it connotes joy. And if you were to look at verse 25, you would see that it connotes comfort as well. I was trying to imagine what this would be like. Just moments of laughing with such joy here on earth and saying, is that but another creaturely token of what awaits us in heaven? And one of the things that makes me laugh quite a bit right now is um, those moments, are those moments when I come home and Thea will ask me, Daddy, are you going to play in my room? Now, she's gotten used to my responses, and if I had told her that I would play in her room, she knows what I'm going to say. Usually when I see her, I'll say, yes, remember I told you. So now, when she asks me if I'm going to play in her room, if I say yes, it's kind of like a cue for her in her mind to say, I told you, I told you, I told you. So it sounds really cute and funny. She'll say, Daddy, are you going to play in my room? And I'll say, yes, baby, I'm going to play in your room. She's like, I told you, I told you, I told you. And I just, I just smile. She makes me laugh quite a bit. And I'm like, wow, like this, it's just a, a laughing at such sweetness and, and cuteness and, and all of those dynamics. And there's going to be that sense in heaven that you're just going to have this joy-filled laughter. And all of the dynamics of how it's going to come about as you're sitting with brothers and sisters in Christ, as you're enjoying the presence of your Savior, I just simply want you to know that in heaven there is also a time to laugh. Not just here, but there. And if you weep now, be assured that the day is coming when you're weepter, you're weepter, that's the worst kind of weeping, you're weepter, where you're weeping will turn to laughing and joy. Now another picture, this might strike you by, um, this might take you by surprise. Brochure inclusion number four. I would put on this brochure, celestial horses. And you might say, what are you talking about? Where are we going now? I would put celestial horses. 
Now, we don't wonder whether or not there are animals in the renewed earth. Right? We look at Isaiah 11, we look at Isaiah 65, and, and we, we see that that's part of what is going to be on the new earth, that there are going to be animals, and that's exciting to uh, consider. But sometimes people might wonder, well, what about the heaven that is? Are there any animals right now in the heaven that is? And the only hypothesis that I could present to you, based upon the scriptures, is that there are celestial horses. And the reason why I say that would be based upon Old Testament text and some New Testament texts. Remember in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17, remember when um, the prophet Elisha was there with his servant, and his servant saw the surrounding Syrian army that was sent on a mission to Dothan to apprehend the prophet Elisha. And the servant's getting nervous because he's seeing this army come and surround the city. And then if you remember what the prophet Elijah said to him, Elisha, he told him to not fear. He said there are more with us than there are with them. And then he prayed to Yahweh that Yahweh would open his servant's eyes that he might see. And he saw, and this is what we're told in 2 Kings 6.17. Behold the mountain as full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So he saw these horses, these celestial horses. You get towards the end of the book of Revelation, and you know that when Jesus returns, the way he's depicted as returning in Revelation 19.11, John says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And then he goes on in verse 14 and says, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And I know that there are connotations um, in light of that description. I know there are connotations. But I would also say it should lead us to expect to see celestial horses when you put together the Old Testament reference and those New Testament references. Brochure inclusion number five. I would include in this brochure, I would really need to rely on Mark to make sure we did this right and that we didn't go beyond what was written. I would want to include depictions from the throne room scene in Revelation 4. I would want to communicate to, <clears throat> to you all a little bit of what John saw in Revelation 4. I'm going to walk you through some of what he saw, not the entirety of it, uh, but some of it. It's interesting, in Revelation 4, when you see John say that he was caught up into heaven and that immediately he was in the spirit, notice where his eyes go immediately in Revelation 4. They go right to the throne. As a matter of fact, if you go through Revelation 4, it's only 11 verses, you'll see that John or the angelic creatures within Revelation 4 mention the throne of God over 10 times. It's as though the throne was front and center. John gets caught up there and he sees the throne of God. And let me just say, that should encourage you right now. That regardless of what you see going on in this world, you know that that's where God is. He is on His throne. No one else is on the throne. He is on the throne. And at His right hand is His Son, who is our Savior, to whom all authority on heaven and earth has been given. Now, John also saw emanations of light. He said in Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. 
So he's not giving this description of the Father. He's depicting, he's helping you see the emanations of light that were coming from the throne. The first bit of light that he referenced looks like a jasper, he was saying. You might say, well, what does a jasper stone look like? It looks like in the ancient world he was referring to a diamond. I say that because a little bit later on in the book of Revelation, Revelation 21.11, jasper stone is described as being clear as crystal. So you have this beautiful, clear kind of light through which other lights could likely be refracted and, refracted and so on. And then he says that he was like a sardius stone, a kind of red ruby color is what he saw. Now what is this meant to connote? I don't know exactly. There are guesses and there are plenty of guesses out there. The clear, bright light, maybe depicting the reality of God's holiness. The red light reminding us of the blood that saved us. The Father offering His Son for us. It's just depicting for us, I think, the beauty of God's glory there emanating from His throne. John also says that there was a rainbow. There was a rainbow. As though to communicate that God's sovereignty, even as He is on His throne, is directed by His faithfulness. But interestingly, he says that that uh, rainbow had an emerald hue to it. So just imagine, imagine this glorious light. Driving here on Highland Boulevard, the sun was on its way to setting, and I could just see like this beautiful light that was coming. I'm just imagining just a creaturely glimpse of the glory of God and what it's going to be like to see his throne and the beautiful colors that are shining from it. Then John says that he saw 24 thrones with 24 elders clothed in white robes and crowns of gold on their heads. I will tell you that I think, beyond a shadow of a doubt, this represents God's blood-bought people. I think the 24 elders are representative of the people of God. I say that pretty, pretty confidently in light of what we see later on in Revelation 5. Remember in Revelation 5, when the Son is introduced to the scene, the, the Lamb of God who was slain for our sins and so on, remember that the 24 elders said, you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Are there more than 24 tribes and tongues out there? Oh yes, there are. So why are there 24 elders around the throne? Well, there are different possibilities, right? 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel, 24 divisions of priests that we see in Chronicles. But I think very clearly, we're talking about the people of God being represented. And where are the people of God? Do you have some out in left field? <laughs> Do you have some out in no man's land? No, they're all depicted. This is so beautiful, and this should excite you about heaven. They're all depicted as being around the throne. You know the song that we sing, around the throne? It's based upon this scene. But you want to grab some of the beautiful implications of this. The implications of this are that all of God's people have access to Him. Because you might wonder, all right, if I'm going to be one of so many, an innumerable company that is going to be redeemed, how am I going to have access to God? And this picture should remind you, oh, you will have access to God. As a matter of fact, all of the blood-bought people of God are right there, right around the throne. Well, how does that work out spatially? How does that you know, work out in this way and that way? I, I don't have to know all that. 
All I have to do is tell you what's depicted. And what's depicted is all of God's people right around the throne. But let me tell you one way in which this might work out. I think in Isaiah 65, we get a little glimpse of that. A passage that we will be in, Lord willing, more when we consider the subject of um, the millennium and so on. Um, There, I want you to hear what Isaiah writes. He says, It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. And there are those on the premillennial side who look at Isaiah 65, those on the amillennial side that will look at Isaiah 65, and so on. But what I want to do is call, you, call your attention to something amazing. In the age to come, Isaiah 65 verse 24 connotes to us that wherever God's people are, let's say you're somewhere in that big new Jerusalem, and it's big. I'm excited when we start talking about the eternal state and we look at the measurements of the new Jerusalem and how big it is. You're somewhere in a new Jerusalem. You're somewhere in a new earth and you're doing something. Are you far away from God? No, wherever you are, that before you even call, he will answer. And while you are still speaking, he will hear. It's as though between the the picture of the elders being around the throne in Isaiah 65, verse 24, it's as though you know you have immediate, ever-present access to God in a way that far transcends even the glorious, ever-present access we have right now. Amazing. There's more we could say about this. If you look into heaven, what else do you see? You see the elders around the throne, and what do you see them wearing? You see them wearing white garments. What does that connote? Purity. No more sin. No sin-stained garments. The moment you put off this fallen frame, you're a spirit of a just man or woman made perfect. I remember when I was going through uh, long-haul COVID early on, and I had one of my first um, IV infusions of like vitamin C, maybe there's a little bit of magnesium and so on. And the next day, I remember driving in the car with my family, and I felt for the first time in so long, like I felt like myself. I felt alert. I looked at them, even as I'm driving, and I'm like, this is me. This is who I am. I feel here. I feel here in this moment. I'm like, look, if I never feel this way again, it's okay. I'm so thankful to God for this moment. Because sometimes I just wondered if I would ever feel like myself again. And I wonder if that's a little bit of a glimpse of what it will be like when we put off our fallen frames. I know it's what it will be like when we get our glorified bodies. But even when we put off this fallen frame of sin, spirits of just men and women made perfect, not tainted by our fallenness and the sinfulness that is prompted by our fallenness, all of a sudden we're like, this is who I am. This is who I am. I can enjoy God. I can look at things rightly. I can consider things soundly. This is who I am. Still waiting for a glorified body, but this is who I am. (laughs) Purity. And even crowns of gold. Within the context, interestingly, don't don't forget, the 24 elders, where are they sitting? On 24 thrones. 24 thrones. What does that connote? Authority? Having some share in God's reign? And yet at the same time, they're still waiting to reign on the earth. Revelation 5.10. Amazing. Those are some glimpses. And maybe one of the things that I think, um, I'll just call your attention to one more time. Again, the elders being around the throne. That gets me so excited about heaven. See, God is not like us. You know, you're, you're, like, um, you're like an outlet that only has so many plugs. 
God's not like that. Don't think of God in that way. I mean, you know, I have two kids, Zachary and Thea, and if they're talking to me at the same time, I just can't do it. (laughs) But God's not like that. And he's going to be able to give amazing personal attention to everybody in heaven, all right there around the throne. Brochure, Brochure inclusion number six. I'll go through this one rather quickly. I would do my best um, to come up with a way to depict an image of the heavenly city and the references to those who dwell in it. Um, Some images we would not make in this case because you wouldn't want to get it wrong. Um, But let let me say the passage that I would want to depict in some way. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 24. The text reads like this. But you have come to Mount Zion. In the context, and I'm not going to go through the entirety of the context, but in the context, it's in contrast to Mount Sinai, a mountain of holy justice, a mountain of righteous indignation. You haven't come to Mount Sinai. Good news, church, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, this mountain that symbolizes the new covenant. I mean, you go through the scriptures, and Zion was always connected Uh, When God chose it as that place where he would dwell, it was meant to be a place that connoted God dwelling with his people. And you are voyaging there right now, that heavenly city. It's a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And as I told you last time, I'll tell you again, everything that you have seen with your eyes on this earth, every beautiful city, particularly is what I'm calling your attention to, has been made with human hands. But one day you will see a city that has been made by the uncreated Creator's hands, so to speak. If you're excited about what fallen creatures can build, and if you're like me and you get excited imagining what glorified human beings will be able to build, alongside of angels and so on, then you should be really excited to see what God has prepared for those who love Him. So he says, You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. An innumerable company of angels. It's a word that's used there um, that could be used to describe the number 10,000 or it could refer to a large and indefinite number. Interestingly, the ESV renders this part of the verse like this, that you've come to, quote, innumerable angels in festal gathering. It's as though you've come to angels who are celebrating. And believe me, the angels are praising Him in His sanctuary. They are praising Him in the heaven of the heavens. Don't think, you might have in your mind just images of angels that are, that are kind of daunting. And believe me, if you're on the wrong side of an angel, it is daunting. Believe me, when you see an angel show up, as we see in the scriptures, it is daunting to see a holy being that comes from the presence of God, carrying the glory of God. But believe me, these angels are also celebrating. They're celebrating the living God. What is it going to be like to see them? Do you ever think of that? Like that maybe that some of the greatest relationships you'll have in your life, your eternal life, will include angels? Like, do you ever just imagine, like, just getting to sit down and talk with Gabriel and Michael? Not that that's what you're looking forward to most in heaven. You're looking forward to being in the presence of your Father and in the Son, with the Son and the Holy Spirit. I know. But just imagine. you got all of eternity to get to know Michael better. I think this is exciting. You've come to 
um, the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. You've come to the God, to God, the judge of all, the one who's our vindicator, the one who will judge all of our enemies on the last day. He's the one who's seated on the throne. To the spirits of just men made perfect. Ultimately, I would say this refers to all who have been justified by faith who are in heaven. And you've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood uh, of sprinkling that speaks better things to that of Abel. And I'll tell you one other inclusion that I might make. And I'm not sure. I'd put a question mark near this one before I get to the, um, the final one, a kind of bonus one. I would maybe put, with a question mark, the tree of life and flowers. I'll tell you why I say that. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. I want to just tell you how my mind thinks with relationship to this topic, and I just say why I would lean in that direction. You might wonder, what happened to the tree of life? Was it destroyed in the flood? And perhaps maybe that is what happened, and there are people who would you know, have that opinion. But there's also the possibility that at some point before the flood, God transported it to heaven. And the reason why I say that based upon the text would be the following. If you look at the language that Jesus uses here, he uses the Greek verb estin. It's present active indicative. He talks of the tree of life being in the midst of the paradise of God. The other reason why I call attention to that possibility is because that word for paradise is only used three times in the New Testament. You know when it's used. When Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me where? In paradise. Paul says he was caught up to the third heaven, and then he describes it as what? Paradise. This is the third time it's used, Revelation 2.7. So I just want to hold out the possibility that in the New Jerusalem, we see it later on in the book of Revelation, we see there it is in the midst of the New Jerusalem, that maybe if we're going to imagine the heaven that is rightly now, that we're also imagining the tree of life there. And then one other possibility, I just hold this out as a possibility, 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 27. Remember, this could be a study in itself. That if you looked at the tabernacle and the temple, they were kind of shadows of the perfect which was in heaven. And one of the interesting verses concerning the temple is in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 27. Then he carved all the walls of the temple all around, both the inner and the outer sanctuaries, with carved figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. I know the cherubim are there. I know it's a good possibility in light of the evidence I just gave to you that the tree of life is there. We think there's just a tree? Maybe. But there might be flowers, too. And more trees and flowers than you might realize already right now in the heaven that is. And here's my last brochure inclusion I would give you. A little bit of a bonus. I would include text once again to kind of end this brochure. I would include the words, you're going there. Because whoever got this brochure, I'm imagining it in the context of giving it to the people of God so that they might get excited. It would say, you're going there. And then it would have in quotes, a little bit separate from that, welcome home. You might say for the believer, 
the brochure comes with a ticket and an assured date of entry. You get the brochure, but it also comes with a ticket, and the price of admission has been paid by the blood of the Son of God who died for your sins on the cross. And now you hold on to the ticket throughout the entirety of your new life in Christ, and you hold it throughout the entirety of your life, new life in Christ, and you never lose it. And the reason why you never lose it is because you are kept by the power of God through faith, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last day. So you have the brochure, you have the ticket, the price of admission has been paid for by the blood of the Son, and you never lose it. You never let it go because God's got his hand over your hand, and he's ensuring by his power through the instrumentation of faith that you're going to hold on to it till the very end. And then when you get there, I imagine, so this is just my imagining, two things. I'm imagining that when you get there, if you've ever been somewhere that you thought was beautiful, right? Like, wow, this place is amazing. Just imagine in your mind. Imagine right now if you were to go to a hotel that's the nicest hotel that you could ever imagine. And you walk in and you get greeted. And they say, your room is ready for you. They know you by name. But yet at the same time, mingle that, mingle that with that feeling that you have when you've been on vacation or you've been out for a while and you've been away from home or something like that and all of a sudden you just can't wait to get home. Maybe you're driving a long distance and you're like, I can't wait to get home. I can't wait to get home. And you have that feeling that you have when all of a sudden you open the door and you're home. Mingle those two things together and I think you get a little glimpse of what it's going to be like when you are absent from the body and present with the Lord. That's how it fill out the brochure. And then, when you get there, you're going to see the one who redeemed you with his blood, the one through whom and for whom all things were created. And then whatever the angels see, when Jesus said, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Whatever it is that they are seeing, you, the pure in heart by the blood of Christ, you shall see God and you shall enjoy whatever it is that they are seeing, seeing the face of God, enjoying the presence of Christ forever. Let's pray. Father, oh, how exciting it is, Lord to imagine what you have prepared. A city with foundations. A city that we are journeying towards. And our date of entry is assured, though that, um, though that date is, as it were, blurred on our tickets and we do not know that date. I thank you that it is an assured date of entry. And you know when it is, and that will be a precious day in the sight of the Lord. Thank you, Father. Help us to be strengthened, encouraged, comforted by these blessed realities. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.